as we begin this morning, I want to kind of put uh, a shameless plug in for our connect groups. Uh, if you're new with us, relationships really, really matter, and what you do in this life impacts your, your the rest of your life, and we believe you grow spiritually better in spiritual community. So we'd love to help you get involved, get connected. Some of you might be feeling like you're ready for that step, or maybe you're ready even to lead one. Uh, Pastor Josh is going to be looking for some leaders and some group participants for this fall. So if God's stirring in your life in that way, please put that on the Connect card as well, and he'll get in touch with you and help you uh, get a group. We have groups in almost all of our surrounding communities. Uh, you can meet in a home, you can meet in a restaurant, you can even meet here at the church. This week, we are in week number two of our series titled After, and we're going to talk about the very serious subject of hell. And for many people, that is an uncomfortable subject. Even just saying that word in church makes uh, some people uncomfortable because, quite honestly, we don't talk about it a lot in church these days. Now, years ago, uh, that was like a huge topic, right? Preachers would preach those fire and brimstone messages and put the fear of God uh, in everyone. And just so you know, like, I didn't wake up this morning and go, oh boy, uh, I get to come to church today and talk about hell. It's going to be so much fun. Uh, it really is a challenging subject in our day and age, but I believe it's one that needs preached. In part, uh, preaching hell is challenging these days because 60% of Americans do not believe that hell exists. That's right. 75% of people believe that heaven exists, but 40 people, 40% of people believe that hell exists. I find that extremely interesting. It's almost like the word of God has become a buffet. People feel free to kind of pick and choose their own plate of understanding about God. Uh, just so that you're aware, as a church... We believe the Word of God is the Word of God, and it is the source of truth, and it is the source of reality. We believe that it is accurate, an accurate account of God's interaction and revelation of who He is to the world. And because God inspired those who wrote it, the Bible is true in everything that it claims. And you and I may have different opinions on how to interpret it, but the context of which it is written and the boundaries of that original language tell us what is right and true and the right way to interpret the Bible, not our opinions. In other words, if you and I hold an opinion that is contrary to the Word of God, we are wrong, not Scripture. Now I'm preaching. Uh, if I was the devil, one of my top priorities would be to try to convince you that hell was not real. Or at least that you shouldn't take it seriously. Because if I could convince you that hell was not real, two things would happen. One, rejecting Jesus would cease to have eternal consequences. I mean, if everyone just goes to heaven anyway... What's the point? 
And number two, your motivation to share Jesus with others would drop considerably. The fact that 60% of people don't believe in hell in my mind explains why the majority of believers in our country don't really share Jesus with other people that often. Oh, we, we do good, we're kind, but we don't attempt, in most cases, to introduce someone to Jesus, which makes me wonder how many people really believe in hell. I want to dig into the Word of God a little bit this morning, and the first question we're going to look to answer is, why does hell even exist? Why would a loving God either allow or create a place like hell? And that question actually reveals a flaw in our understanding of God. Because many people fail to appreciate the righteousness, the holiness of God, and his abhorrence for sin, his hatred of it. And the Bible says hell exists to, number one, punish Satan and the other angels that rebelled against God. So God is holy and sinning against him has consequences. Some people get the kind of misguided understanding that like God reigns in heaven and like the equal and opposite counterpart is Satan and he reigns in hell. That's not the case at all. Satan will be in hell, but he will be there to be punished. He is not God's equal. Matthew 25, 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, he's talking about people, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan and his angels that we know as demons for their rebellion against God. Second, hell exists for God to righteously deal with those who reject Jesus and who not, do not believe the message of the gospel. So the gospel says that Jesus died for sinners, but if you stiff arm God, if you reject him, hell is also for you in your punishment and your rejection against God. I want to look at another scripture. It's 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is difficult, difficult stuff. Some people believe that the most difficult part of hell will be, will be being separated from the glory and the presence of God. I want to look at a passage from Luke 16 with the rest of our time this morning because I think it's the most comprehensive passage that describes hell and what it will be like. Let's start in Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury 
every day. Now, let me stop there and say that this guy was off the charts rich. Uh, purple was not worn by only royalty and the extremely wealthy. Uh, this guy said was said to have lived in luxury every single day. Now, you and I might get dressed up maybe for our anniversary or a birthday that's special and go out to a nice restaurant, eat the best food, kind of live above our means for a day. This guy had the wealth and the ability to do it every single day. In other words, he had absolutely unlimited resources. Let's look at the second person in this story. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we've got an incredibly, incredibly rich guy, and we've got an incredibly poor man named Lazarus with sores all over his body, and he's literally sitting at the rich man's gate every single day. And he was hungry, and he longed to eat the scraps that he knew were available on the other side of that gate, which probably indicates that he did not get them on a regular basis because he's sitting there day in and day out in agony, longing to eat whatever falls from the rich guy's table. And the Bible says that even the dogs came and licked the man's sores. So those sores would have made him unclean, but at least the dogs had some compassion. They're cleaning some of the infection away. They're, they're, helping the man as much as anybody is able uh, to do. Notice there were no cats helping him out, you know, just, <laughs> just saying. But those are the two main characters in this story. An incredibly rich guy, and then Lazarus, who is actually in very close proximity to this rich man. And the fact that the rich man is unnamed in this story, indicates that Jesus is talking to everyone who is rich. And the fact that the man is named indicates how close God is to the poor and the brokenhearted and the needy. God knows his name. Let's look at verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger into the the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Notice that the rich man knew who Lazarus was by sight. This rich man was not unaware of who Lazarus was. He had been at his gate every single day. He knew who this man was. But death is the great equalizer, even the great reverser, since after death, the one thing that counts 
is our heart, where it stands before God and men. God had judged the heart and the actions of both men. Lazarus is blessed and the rich man is in hell. The rich man knew Lazarus' name, which means he might have helped him occasionally, but his heart and his compassionate actions towards this man did not reflect the amount of blessings and resources that God had given him. Ironically, the rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus, almost as a servant, to soothe his agony with water to cool his tongue. It's ironic because it was within the rich man's power and ability to relieve Lazarus's suffering on earth. But he chose not to. This passage begs us to consider what we are doing with the resources that God has blessed us with. Are we using them for ourselves or to relieve the suffering of others? Tragically, let's pick up with verse 25. But Abraham replied, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So even if Lazarus wanted to act compassionately towards this rich man who did hardly anything for him that was greatly within his means, it's too late. The chasm has been set and it cannot be crossed. What we do in this life with what God has blessed us with is eternally significant. Some people wonder if after I die, somebody can, can pray me through from one place to another. And this passage proclaims loud and clear, no, they can't. It is fixed. And you cannot cross from one place to the other. What we do with the love of Jesus and the blessings of God will determine where we spend eternity. So what do we know about hell up to this point. Number one, it's permanent. Once you're there, you're there. Number two, it's agony. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, you are separated from the presence and the glory of God. Sensing that he was stuck where he was, this rich man shows the very first sign of compassion that we are aware of. Look at verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. 
He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Evidently, this man had five brothers that were also rich and were also uncompassionate, that also would end up where this man is, and he fears that they will end up with him in torment. And Abraham proclaims to him, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, God has already told them what he requires. They need to repent of their wickedness, of their lack of compassion, and produce fruit, show their repentance in the way that they live. And as a reader of this story, a story that Jesus told, we are all keenly aware that we are getting a warning that Abraham told that this rich man that his brothers would not get. Abraham said no to a visit from Lazarus, but we just got one. We have been also warned by Jesus himself, who came back from the dead. I find it slightly humorous that Jesus picked the name Lazarus for this poor beggar. Because it was the name of Mary and Martha's brother who he raised from the dead. We have no, no clue, no, no inkling that they were related at all. But touche. We are aware of two people, Jesus and Lazarus, that came back from the dead and we are being warned this morning. It's also ironic because Jesus' words in this story have been proven true. True because he is risen from the dead. And many have rejected his offer of life and continue to walk in darkness. Many are unrepentant and uncompassionate and hoard their resources. I know people who make going to hell a joke. Well, at least I'll have lots of company, they say. Well, I don't like the cold anyway. Hey, when we get there, we'll have a cold one together in hell. No, you won't. It will be complete and total agony and separation from God. And no one is coming to relieve the agony. I know it's difficult and it may seem harsh, but this is very real. And we have been warned, what you believe about the after should impact how you live now. At least it, it should. What else do we know about hell from this story? We know that the rich man was fully conscious. He was aware of who Lazarus was even after his death. He was aware of his pain. He remembered his five brothers. He knew who Father Abraham was by sight. And I would bet that during his life, he even believed in God. He was also conscious of the fact that he couldn't leave. And he was separated from the presence of God. Number four, I believe he knew his punishment was just. 
Hell exists for God to deal justly with the sins of those who resist Jesus. He didn't like his agony, but he never said it wasn't fair. He never said, I didn't know. I shouldn't be here. He described his brothers as people who needed to repent of their ways. The assumption is that he needed to and was where he was because he didn't. God is holy, and hell is a place for him to justly deal with sin. If I was Satan, I would try to convince you that this is something you don't need to think about, that it's not real, that somehow this can be explained away, that a loving God would never Because if I could convince you of that, you wouldn't have to worry about rejecting Jesus or loving God and your neighbor with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You wouldn't have to feel compelled at all to share Jesus with the people around you because it wouldn't matter whether you shared Jesus or not, if everyone just went to heaven. Hey, 75% of people believe that that place exists. Let's just all go there. There are so many people who live like this isn't a reality. They don't have compassion on people in need. They don't use the resources that God has given them to alleviate the suffering of others. Do you know that statistically, unbelievers are actually more generous than believers? And that the poor are actually more generous than the rich? I had a, a friend when I served in Chicago for a month. He pastored the, a Mennonite church, and it was the poorest Mennonite church in the United States, in inner city Chicago. And he kept track of his church's giving. Do you know that his small, poor church in inner city Chicago gave proportionate to their income more than any other Mennonite church in the United States. The poorest church in that denomination outgave every other church in his denomination because the poor understand what it is to be in need and they have compassion. The rich do not and many of us lack compassion. 3% of the people in this country who actually go to church regularly, 3% actually tithe. 3%. How do we reconcile that lack of generosity, that lack of compassion, if we claim to know the truth of Jesus and that people go to hell without him? Honestly, sometimes I look at my own life and I think, you know what, I've got too much stuff. I know where my treasure is supposed to be, and I'm supposed to be working for treasure in heaven. But if I look at my life and I look at my stuff, I think, you know what, I'm not sure that I would be able to convince many people that my treasure isn't upon this earth. I've got family and friends who aren't walking with Jesus We've all got neighbors, co-workers, people that you attend school with. Have we shared Jesus with them? 
Do, do we try to make the introduction? We need to pray and ask God to empower us to die to ourselves so that some other people can actually live and experience God's presence for eternity. Listen to the voice of an atheist. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like your show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I His words, one polite guy doesn't change in his mind that there is no God. We believe there is. I had a professor in seminary that he figured over the years, on average, it took someone 25 different encounters with a believer to convince them that Jesus was Lord and to accept him as their Savior. Maybe that was just the first nice, sane, genuine person. What happens if we were the second, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth? What happens if those that we know that don't know him knew him? But people can't hear unless someone tells them. They can't be saved unless someone cares enough. At some point, if a truck was bearing down on you, I would tackle you. At some point, if I know you're going to go to hell, I'm going to tell you. Let's pray.